Good morning. Welcome. Welcome. You're sort of finding your way on this uh, beautiful, sunny day here. Oh. So thankful to be able to gather and worship here this morning. I'm going to go over some announcements here to begin. So if you have a, a copy of the eBridge close to you, I'll start with uh, the ministry calendar on the, the right side. So for today, after service, we have uh, two different ministries going on. The college and new career age will be meeting uh, in the conference room back here with Michelle, uh, Hakum and Michelle leading. Uh, Echelon Outreach today, Dave Duell will be leading that. That's at uh, 2 p.m. So always appreciate prayers and anybody that's able to also participate in that. That's only about a, a block away from here. So a service at 2 o'clock and a service at 3 o'clock, and there are two buildings on the campus there. Uh, on Tuesday, we have men's discipleship, so continuing our study on prayer. We have the, the two sessions in the morning and the evening for the one that you're able to attend. Morning is Zoom only, and then the evening is the hybrid. As you can see, the, the information for timing, so 6.15 in the morning as well as 7.30 in the evening for the second one. Uh, midweek ministries will be here Wednesday at 7 p.m. for starting the study. And then on Saturday is the eschatology seminar. So today is the final day for submitting questions beforehand. On the, the back of your eBridge is the method within announcements. The first one is how to be able to submit questions. So those can be uh, given to, to Pastor Mark or emailed out also. Because with that session with Dr. Mark Zakevich on uh, Saturday, he will begin with a message, and then we'll have a, about an hour of Q&A time. So I'd like to prepare and send him organize questions, group them together beforehand for questions that are on our mind around that topic. And then there may be an opportunity for live questions, kind of just depends on, on how much time remains. So anything sent beforehand is, uh, is definitely appreciated. Uh, also, a week from today, we'll have uh, Dr. Anthony Silvestro will actually be preaching this next Sunday and the following Sunday. In the, the pastor's column, it provides a little bit more background with, with Dr. Anthony Silvestro. He's, he's heavily involved in apologetics, especially uh, involved with Answers in Genesis and creation apologetics and ministry there. Uh, he was with us, I'm going to say several years back, as we really had a, a stronger focus on how do we get out and share the truth for those in Medina, especially on the square. And he, he came and provided some... I'll say some training for us to be feel better equipped as we go out there and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. So he'll be back with us here May 1st and May 8th, the next two, two Sundays, uh, preaching. And then I feel like there's one more. There is one more. The, on the back by the doors, there's extra copies of Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. A lot of you already have this. Um, but there's extra copies available if you do not have one. You can take one while supplies last. Uh, this was the, the last book we were doing with the Vet Hall. We have a, a book ministry with the veterans here. So we've tried a couple different approaches of how we could have Bible studies or be sharing the truth with, with the veterans. Um, so they, there were seven copies distributed of this book based on request the last quarter. Uh, we just started the next quarter in the ministry, and the, the book that we're having available this time is a, a biblical view on post-traumatic stress disorder. So um, hopefully uh, can be, be praying for that. That's obviously an area that's on our heart for the veterans here and our, our association and, and what they've done in the service and just a lot of, a lot of challenges as we, as we talk to them. Uh, let us, uh, let's go to prayer. Dear Lord, we are so thankful to be able to, to gather and worship. Lord, I thank you for everyone here. Lord, help us to be able in our time to, to rightly worship you. Help us in our, 
in our time, in our walk, in our ways. Help us to be engaged in this moment, uh, right here and right now, uh, that you are the focal point. Lord, you are the only one that is worthy. We're so thankful for your love. We're thankful for your grace. And we're thankful for your mercy. Help us in this time as we lift you on high. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We've uh, gathered to worship our Lord and our God, and we want to begin with a hymn uh, 26. So if you would find a hymnal and open it up to hymn 26, we want to praise our Lord and our God this morning through song and uh, using this first hymn as a call to worship. It's the hymn, I Sing the Mighty Power of God. It just reflects upon God's uh, work uh, in our world and, and in our lives as well. So let's stand and praise our Lord and our God together through singing, seeing the mighty power of God. And if you need to sit, feel free to sit. morning we'll be returning to our chapter by chapter reading of the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings. Revelation chapter 10. Follow along as I read aloud. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven 
clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea, and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and my ma in my mouth was it was as sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. You may be seated. Would you please join me in prayer? O oh Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You are the Alpha and Omega, the one who declares the beginning from the end. And as we read a portion of scripture like Revelation chapter 10, we're reminded of, of how you have dictated the end of times, how the course of history uh, will culminate. And not only is this a, a foreknowledge, but it is your determining providence that guides history to its culmination. You are Lord of history. You are the, the one who directs all the affairs of our lives, providentially working all things out for our good, working all things out for your glory, working all things out for the rescue of your people, for the exaltation of Christ and of our Father in heaven. Oh, Lord God, we are just so thankful for your work in our lives. We thank you for the redemption which we have in Christ Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for being willing to suffer and die on the cross, being humble and taking on the form of a servant, not regarding um, equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but making yourself lowly, a servant on earth, though a king in heaven. Oh God, our God, we exalt you this morning. We've gathered together in, in the name of Christ to praise God in heaven. We exalt you and are just thankful for your work of redemption, which you have accomplished. Lord God, for the work you're doing now in building the church and in directing all things for your glory for the good of your people throughout the ages. 
Oh, Lord, uh, thank you for providing a place for us to meet and a time to meet and a freedom to meet. We, we know that there are many Christians all over the world who don't have such freedoms. And we pray for them, Lord God, that you would give them boldness, that you would give them shelter and protection, that you would provide for their needs, Lord God, particularly those believers in Ukraine who need um, shelter and food and water and clothing and, and medicine and, and help. And we just ask, Lord God, that you would bring glory to your name. Lord, in the church in Ukraine and in Russia and Poland and all the surrounding countries into which Ukrainians have gone into, we just ask, Lord God, uh, that you would glorify your name and supply what is needed. Oh, God, you, you know how weak we are. Lord, we are sinners um, by birth, though we are your children by second birth. And yet we still struggle with sin. Lord, we just pray for your help, Lord God, to quicken our conscience, Lord, and Lord, help us to be more sensitive to sin and more sensitive to the, the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings regarding sin. Lord, just make our consciences uh, ever more tender to the word of the Lord and the pleadings of the Spirit. We just thank you for your work of interceding for us on the throne above and in our daily lives uh, through your spirit, praying in ways that we don't even, for us, in ways that we don't even know how to pray. Lord, your ministry to us is, is full and abundant and faithful. Lord, we just are, are thankful uh, of you and of your work in our lives. Lord, help us to be uh, better students of your word, and Lord, more faithful in evangelism, that you would help us to grow and just seizing every opportunity that you give us to proclaim the, the mysteries and glories of Jesus Christ and the salvation that, that our Lord and Savior provides to all those who call upon his name. Oh, Lord God, we just uh, ask for your help as we, Lord, uh, continue to worship you today, that in, in song and in word and later in preaching, and even after the service in our fellowship with one another, Lord, that you would just just edify us and encourage us and help us to glorify and honor you. Help us to serve one another, Lord, to come here at this location, uh, Lord, with an attitude of, of serving others, ultimately serving you to exalt you for what you have done in our lives. Lord, it is our privilege and duty to live for you who died for us. Lord, we, we just thank you for those that presented the gospel to us uh, the ones through whom we heard the message. And we are thankful that there are those who have been sent out today for the sake of the name of Christ, who are proclaiming Christ even today in foreign lands. And in particular, we want to lift up, lift up the, the rice dwarfs and ask for your help for them uh, today and this week and or this month, that, Lord, that you would help them to proclaim Jesus Christ in the Polish language, Lord, to, to those around them. Help Kyle as... He's leading a discipleship group with younger men that you, Lord, that you would just give him opportunities to clearly proclaim Christ and that you would help him in his language skills to grow so that the communication of, of the gospel is not hindered uh, at all by his uh, language ability. Lord, I just ask you to help him to uh, be an effective teacher in Polish, that he would be able to teach effectively and fully and in the Polish language and help Christine as well just to continue to grow. 
give them solid friendships and help them to be able to communicate Lord, uh, in a Polish language at a deep enough level to build those kind of long-lasting friendships. We pray for Christine, Lord, just in her health issues that she has, that you would undergird her and strengthen her and make, make her an example of, of someone who uh, finds a, her endurance through suffering in, in her Lord and Savior. Give her much strength, much help in time of need to, to go through all the difficulties she's going through. Give her the energy she needs to care for her family. And we, um, Lord, just ask that you would uh, just draw many uh, to know you through her example of just trusting you through uh, suffering through an illness. We pray, too, for their children, Lord God, that you would just uh, help Kyle and Christine to disciple and shepherd them faithfully and that you would bring these children to know you uh, at, a, at a very young age. We pray for their church, Lord, um, that you would just help the church there um, to, to be faithful, to be unified, and Lord, to be a, a, just a faithful witness to those in the Polish community and also as well the Ukrainians that are among them. Continue to provide the finances that are needed to, to help fund these rental homes that have been procured to, to help the Ukrainian refugees have a home. And Lord God, we just pray for the progress of the gospel in Poland for your name's sake. Please help us now, Lord, as we continue our, our worship of you in song and, and just focusing on your word. And Lord, later as the word is preached, to, to glorify and honor you, to worship you in spirit and in truth in ways that glorify and honor uh, your name and are acceptable to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Continue to praise our Lord and our God through um, just uh, singing uh, hymns together. So please open up your hymnal to hymn 44. This is the hymn, Come Praise and Glorify Our Lord and Our God. So let's stand together and lift our voices unto him.
living God, the God who hears, the God who saves. Turn to him 55, and let's continue our worship of our living God through the hymn, um, O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. For our time in the Word of God this morning, we're going to consider the, the relationship between Israel and the church. And I'll say more about why we're looking at that in just a moment. But for our uh, time, you can go ahead and open up to the book of Jeremiah. I'm going to start by reading a, a passage there in just a moment. But before we uh, get into the, the details of this, let's go to our Lord in prayer, asking for his help uh, for this time. Our Lord God, you are our help in ages past and our hope for years to come. You, you are the reason that we exist. You are the reason that we can have hope in, in this um, uh, 
beyond this life. That this life is not all there is. That there is a, a future, an eternity. And that eternity will be either be spent in heaven or hell. And for all those who believe in you, you usher them into heaven with you for eternity. Not because of what you have done. And not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done. Oh, Lord God, help us to just to see your faithfulness in all the scriptures, in all your ways. There's never been a time when you haven't been faithful and we exalt you for that. Help us now as we turn to uh, what a, a controversial subject for some. Just give us a teachable heart, Lord, to filter everything that is said and heard through the lens of scripture and also filter in our own beliefs through the lens of scripture that we would change where that is needed to align with your word for your glory and for our good. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, as I mentioned, we are going to consider this morning the topic of the relationship between Israel and, and the church. And um, why, why would we bring up such a, a topic as this? Uh, normally, we would go through a passage by passage and that uh, we won't change from that. We will get back to, to doing that. I will eventually get to Philemon um, in, in, um, in, in the near future. Uh, one of the things that, uh, as I told some of you, you, many of you already know that I'm going through the Doctor of Ministry program in preaching through the Master Seminary, and that requires uh, studying certain topics. And this particular session is on theology and preaching. And so I'm doing a lot of reading in theology, and so some of my, some of my sermons need to reflect that uh, in order to um, just pour myself into that as well as have you guys receive benefit from that. But I've, met, read, met, I've read many books, and you can be thankful that I haven't turned them all into sermons. Um, it's a good thing. Um, so I want you to see there's more to it than just the fact that I read a book on the relationship of Israel and the church. Each believer needs to properly understand the relationship between Israel and the church. If for no other reason than the fact that God has revealed these things to us in his word. Deuteronomy 29, 29 talks about how the, how the things revealed belong to us. There are the secret things of God that we don't know. There are things that, that God knows that we do not. There are mysteries, uh, true, genuine uh, mysteries that are still uh, unknown to us and, and may always be. But God has revealed to us through the pages of Scripture um, the relationship between Israel and the church. Um, and, and in part, I think it's the duty of pastors to help their churches think through controversial topics. And if you're from more of a reform background, understand that in an hour session, I can't give you everything that could possibly be said uh, uh, to to um, help you understand why why we believe that that the church has not replaced Israel, but what I hope to do today is to help you get a, a kind of a, a a larger view, a, a big view of of the things that you need to consider, no matter where you're at on this issue. These are the things that you need to think about, and even if you are of the position that that the church doesn't replace Israel, these things will help you think more biblically about why you believe what you believe because sometimes people believe things but they don't know why 
So I think it's very helpful for us to, to take a look at this topic. And I believe the, the larger issue is seeing the faithfulness of God. Seeing the faithfulness of God. And our Reformed brethren, and they are brethren, um, would also see the faithfulness of God through some kind of spiritual interpretation or spiritual fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. So I don't want to cast them in the wrong light. They see the faithfulness of God, but I think the faithfulness of God is better displayed when we take his word at what it literally says in the Old Testament and see how God will work that out. Really, we shouldn't be surprised that there's a distinction between Israel and the church when you think about, you take a step back and look a little bit larger view. You think about Adam and Eve. Are they believers? Are they going to be in heaven? Well, yeah, there's no doubt about that. Are they part of Israel? No. Israel wasn't even around. So you have, you have, you have saints pre-Israel, you have saints in Israel, and you have saints in the church, and I believe saints in the tribulational period who will all be saved as one people of God, and yet God uses them in distinct ways during certain periods of history. We're going to get into some of those details, but that's, that's the large view. And so today what we're going to look at is, is I, I can't say that it's a 30,000 foot view because you know when you're at 30,000 feet, you don't see much unless there's a big mountain. But this, this might be the 10,000 foot view or something like that where, you, where you, you see, we see more, but we're not going to go into depth at any one, anything. And I'm going to point you uh, to resources where you can dig deeper on these things. And I, indeed, I've already given you some in the eBridge. Uh, if you have the hard copy of the eBridge for our guests, uh, those obviously don't have links on them. So you can email me and I can send you the PDF version, which does have the links to the articles uh, that I mentioned in there. So the main message today is that the church has not replaced Israel. The church and Israel share much in common, yet have been given distinctive roles for exalting God and his plan of redemption and I, I want to give you some essential considerations to think biblically about Israel and the church. And, and to really to, to get our minds uh, started in the right, right direction here, I'm going to have you turn to Jeremiah 31. Again, I won't be expositing a passage of Scripture, but I want us to... Um, I will be reading scripture, but this won't stick in one place for, for too long. This is in a passage on the new covenant. Um, looking at verse 27, there God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, sow the house of, when I sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of the beast, as I have watched over them to pluck, to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. The old days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor 
and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now watch what he says here. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, and the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also will also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. There's so much there. We could spend our time there. But but think about what the Lord has promised. If the fixed order that we know, the sun, if that could stop appearing, then the Lord would, would um, forget Israel. But he's the one who holds that sun in place. The stars for light. He, he appeals to the creation order and says, if, if these fixed orders cease, then, then the nation of Israel will also cease from being a nation. Implying that as long as these things are true, then the nation of, of Israel has, uh, has hope as a nation, it says, from being a nation for, uh, before me forever. The church is many things, beloved, but not a nation. Now, I, I told you we're going to get into essential considerations to think about, and, and we will. So let's get started. The first thing I want us to consider is to clearly understand and define the terms used. We, we talk about Israel and the, the ch- church um, quite frequently, but I think it's helpful if we just pause and, and reflect upon what are we talking about. So let's first look at Israel, the, the term Israel. How, how do we define it? How do we understand this? Like other words, the meaning is bound up in the context which it appears uh, whatever, wherever in scripture it appears. One dictionary lists eight different uses of the word Israel in holy scriptures. These are be distinctives. So first of all, Israel is the name that God gave to Jacob after striving with God near, near the river uh, Jabbok in Genesis thirty-two twenty-eight. Israel is the name collectively and nationally applied to the 12 tribes, the descendants, the physical descendants of Jacob. You can see that in Genesis 47, 27, among other passages. Israel is used for the united kingdom that is uh, developed by Saul and later led by David and Solomon. We see this in 1 Samuel 9, 16. And, and this, some historians refer to this as the first commonwealth of Israel. Israel is the name taken by the ten northern tribes. So after after Solomon departs and there's the breakup of the kingdom between the between Israel, it's no longer a united kingdom. The northern tribes take on the name Israel, no longer referring to all Israelites, but merely those northern tribes uh, that followed Jeroboam into idolatry. That's in First Kings twelve twenty. Israel is also used by the Hebrews. The term Israel is used by the Hebrews who returned from the Babylonian captivity and were led by Ezra and Nehemiah. So they were not a nation and then they brought them back and they were a nation again out of uh, Babylon. Israel is is used again um, 
with a finer shade of meaning to include laymen as well as distinguished from priests, Levites, and other ministers. That's in Ezra 6, verse 16. And Israel is used in reference to Jesus Christ in, in a, being identified as the true and ultimate Israelite. Now, this identification of Jesus Christ being the true and ultimate Israelite comes from comparing Matthew 2.15 with Hosea 1.1. So this isn't this is a theological identification. Nowhere in scripture does it say Jesus is a true Israelite, but it is a, I think a true conclusion to to make a comparison between Matthew 2:15 and Hosea 1:1 1, 1 and saying that ultimately Christ fulfills who the Israelites were were to be the, who the nation was to be that that failed in their mission, but Christ um Christ fulfilled that. Now keep in mind that there's a, a that there's a debate about the implications of Christ being um, being the true Israel, and that has bearing on our question that we're looking at today. So we don't we don't uh, disagree, or should say we agree that Christ is identified, Jesus is identified as a true Israel, a true Israelite. But we would disagree um, over the issue of the implications of that. Does identifying Jesus as true Israel mean everything is fulfilled in Christ so that there is no future restoration for the nation of Israel? Or does identifying Jesus as true Israel uh, form the basis for national Israel's future restoration? This latter implication is what I believe makes the best sense of the biblical data. Now, I, we won't have time to dig into the, to the debate here, but but what I've given you um, in the eBridge is there's a link in there uh, to a helpful article entitled "What Does Christ as True Israel Mean for the Nation of Israel?" by Michael Vlock uh, from the Spring 2012 issue of the Master Seminary Journal. That's uh, you can find that online uh, free and, and read that article if you want to dig into those details on that. Then, so that that is the seventh use of the of the term Israel or distinctive use of the term Israel. There is an eighth. Then there is a debated use of the term Israel in Galatians 6.16. Now, we don't debate it. The word is clearly used. The debate is about who is it referring to. In Galatians 6.16, and maybe it would be helpful if we just turn to there and, and read it. Uh, Galatians 6.16 to kind of see it in its context. He's talking about the Israel of God. So in a, I'll just read a little bit of the context, uh, picking up maybe in, the, in verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So that the debate is about who is the Apostle Paul talking about in the Israel, uh, when he talks about the Israel of God. Some would say that this, is a, that this is a figurative use of the word Israel that applies to all children of promise, including Gentile believers. And thus, the, their conclusion is that this Israel of God then also applies to the church. Now, if Paul used the term Israel to apply to the church, to apply to Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus Christ, it, it would then be the only such use of the term Israel in the scriptures. 
In every other passage, the word Israel is used to describe those who are at least biological descendants of Jacob. Now, there, there is also debate about Romans 9.6 and 11.26, but there I think the, the evidence is, is, uh, is fairly substantial that he's talking about those who are ethnic uh, Jews or ethnic Israelites. But even if you include uh, Romans 9.6 and, and Romans 11.26 as, as debatable passages, the term Israel in all other passages refers to ethnic biological descendants of Jacob. And one of the principles, core principles of, of, hermeneutic, of hermeneutics or Bible studies is that you don't depart from the natural literal meaning, meaning unless the literal meaning doesn't make sense. So don't go looking for um, a spiritual definition of a word if the literal definition or meaning makes sense. In, his, uh, in, a, in an article on Paul and the Israel of God, S. Lewis Johnson notes this. He says, there is no instance of, in biblical literature of the term Israel being used in the sense of the church or the people of God as composed of both believing ethnic Jews and Gentiles, unquote. And, and there are literally reams of paper that have been um, used to print all the articles that have been written on Galatians 6.16. So we're obviously not going to dig into the depths of that. But it, but it does seem best to, to understand Galatians 6.16 as a reference to ethnic descendants of Israel who become spiritual descendants of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. And I would say at the Messiah's return. Um, and the, the article by S. Lewis Johnson um, also says this. I think he nicely uh, summarizes the, the issue here. He says, persistent efforts... To explain the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16 as a reference to the church defy overwhelming grammatical, exegetical, and theological evidence that the expression refers to ethnic Israel. Unquote. So if you look at, look at the, the, the evidence, uh, the hermeneutical evidence, grammatical, uh, exegetical, theological, it points to understanding this as the... Um, as ethnic Israel. Uh, in conclusion, when, when, we, when I use the word Israel this morning, we're talking about national Israel, ethnic Israel, uh, in, in distinction from the church. Now, let's talk about the church. Again, one might think about it, that it's kind of straightforward. We use the word term church all the time. But in this conversation, I think it's helpful to define our terms. Here, the word church is a translation of the New Testament Greek word ecclesia, which is used in a specialized sense. In a, in a general context, the a literal translation of this word is assembly. So simply in some portions of scripture, it is translated that way. It's, it, one dictionary explains it this way, that the word ecclesia is simply in a, in a generic sense is a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, unquote. The word can refer to any gathering or throng of men assembled by chance or tumultuously. It's used this way in, in Acts 19. Let's read Acts 19.32. This is uh, in a case where one of the riots were after Paul was preaching. So then some were shouting one thing and some another. For the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. It's the same Greek word. So why did the translators put assembly, translated as assembly there, not church? 
because it's, it's not used in a technical sense. It's used in a generic sense, right? In a generic sense, it just means assembly, any assembly, a lawful assembly or an unlawful assembly, assembly um, of, of people just gathered together. Now, I've mentioned the, some, sometimes it's at times helpful to look at the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it helps us understand the correlation between Hebrew words and Greek words. So that, that's where it is helpful. And the Septuagint uses the word ecclesia to speak of the assembly of the Israelites. There are certain passages we could do, go to and, and, and point out the particular Hebrew word that that relates to. And, and then the New Testament word uses, uh, sorry, the New Testament uses ecclesia in, in this sense of, of assembly of Israelites in Acts 7.38. So it kind of reinforces the idea. This, and it, I'll just read that to you, Acts 7.38. This is, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with, with our fathers and he was receiving, he, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. So, Understand the word ecclesia in a general sense can just mean a an assembly, and 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 it's used as for an assembly of Israelites, both in the the Septuagint and in the New Testament book of Acts. And this common general usage of the Greek term has been misunderstood by some, with the result that they use this for evidence of seeing the church in the Old Testament, the church in Israel. In a sermon on uh, on the Exodus, one reformed pastor concluded, and I quote, Moses led the church through the wilderness, unquote. He sees he's mixing of terms. He's not understanding the, 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 the specialized technical use of the term ecclesia in the New Testament. The church in general, in distinction from the general usage, which means assembly. So it's not correct. Um, at all to say that, that Moses led the church through the, the wilderness. Um, assuming the best of motives, it's just a, it's a mistake in, in his exegesis. But some use it to mislead others. It, it's not correct because this view fails to recognize that at times the authors of the New Testament, this isn't me imposing my ideas. This is, this, is, this is reflecting the fact that the authors of the New Testament use the word ecclesia in a specialized technical sense. When you talk about technical, what it means is the word takes on a, a technical or unique use. When we talk about a word taking on a technical sense, I don't mean it's technical like engineering. I mean it, it takes on a technical meaning, a specific meaning of the word. And the New Testament authors used it in that sense. The English word church reflects the specialized meaning of the Greek word ecclesia. So um, it's a kind of an interesting study. If you do a history uh, study on the history of the, of the word, the English word church, and we won't take time to do that. But according to the website gotquestions.org, so you can go there if you want to know the more details, the English word church means house of the Lord, right? House of the Lord. And, and of course, some people apply that to the building and there are others that say, no, the church isn't the building. The church is the people, which really biblically the church are, is, are the people, right? Not the buildings. So um, rightly understood, there are church buildings, but the church are, it's you guys, people. 
The church refers to those saved by Jesus Christ regardless of their ethnicity. The apostles and the early Christians knew the difference between Israel and the church. And so it must we. And, and it's interesting. If you read the book of Acts, there's no confusion over Israel and the church. There's, there's, it's clearly in, in that text. And, and the distinction is not difficult to see. S. Lewis Johnson in his article says this, the usage of the terms Israel and the church in the early chapters of the book of Acts is in complete harmony. For Israel exists there alongside the newly formed church and the two entities are kept separate in terminology. So there's no confusion amongst the apostles and the early believers on between the church and Israel. There was no confusion. The church was not replacing Israel as a nation. So we've talked about Israel, we talked about church, so the Israel being ethnic, national, Israelite, the church being those who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, whether they're Gentile or, or Israeli, whether a Jew or Gentile. Now, another term I want to introduce to you is the term supersessionism. It's not a word that, that um, it's one of those theological terms that there's, um, another way to put it would be re replacement theology. Supersessionism is the view that the New Testament church is the new and true Israel and has forever superseded the nation of Israel as the people of God. The term supersessionism comes from two Latin words, super, which means on or upon, and sedra, to sit. Uh, thus, it carries the idea of one person sitting in another person's chair, thus taking their place. So supersessionism just means the church takes the, the place of Israel. Some prefer the term fulfillment. The church fulfills Israel, but the net effect is the same. The church replaces Israel. Um, Michael Vlock in his book, Has a Church Replaced Israel, highlights two core beliefs of supersessionism. Number one, the nation of Israel has some, somehow completed or forfeited its status as the people of God and will never again possess a unique role or function apart from the church. And secondly, that the church is now the true Israel that has permanently replaced or superseded national Israel as the people of God. So those are, there are variations within, within the, that system or, of beliefs, but those are the two kind of core principles. Then, then on the other side would be non-supersessionism, uh, which is exactly what you might think when you put the word non in, in front of that. So it's the view that the New Testament church is not the new Israel and has not superseded the nation of Israel as the people of God. So non-supersessionism holds that God has only temporarily rejected Israel as a nation and will one day save and restore national Israel to fulfill the many kingdom and land promises of the Old Testament. So at the end of this, we say know your terms. Clarify your terms, because some people, if you read their commentaries, they use the word church in the Old Testament. Well, that's not right. Um, and then there, there are portions in the, in the scriptures where even in the, um, in the New Testament, where they're trying to take the term Israel, which is the New Testament, and apply it to the church. That's not correct either, to call the church Israel. So be sure to clearly understand and define the terms when you're studying this issue. Secondly, Know the importance and influence of hermeneutics on the debate. What is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the arts and science of Bible study. It's the principles that you use to understand the meaning of the text. Um, and, and Vlock notes that in his book, in, in his book he notes uh, that, that one's hermeneutical assumptions 
will largely determine on where one lands on the relationship between Israel and the church. That's also true uh, regarding your eschatology. If you, uh, if you just explain your hermeneutics of how the principles that you use to interpret scripture, then it, it's very likely that I can predict where you're going to land in your eschatology. Or well, you can do the same thing with your view on the church and Israel. Hermeneutics is, a, is a, the principles you use is a, is a big influence. So we need to be careful of, of the hermeneutics that we use. Now, uh, I want to just highlight the hermeneutics of supersessionism and compare that and contrast with the hermeneutics of, of non-supersessionism. Vlock identifies three interrelated hermeneutical beliefs. Number one, belief in the interpretive priority of the New Testament over the Old Testament. That is, they would hold that the Old Testament is to be understood through the lens of the New Testament. Um, secondly, belief in the non-literal Belief in non-literal fulfillments of Old Testament texts regarding Israel. And you have to believe this if you're going to end up with the church replacing Israel. Because the Old Testament texts, if you, if you understand them in a literal way, clearly prophesy a future restoration of the nation of Israel. Just like we read about from, from Jeremiah. It's clear. There's no way around that. So in order to get around that or to explain what they see, uh, <clears throat> explain what they see from the New Testament text, they have to, it drives them to a non-literal interpretation of the Old Testament text. Thirdly, uh, they would hold to a belief that national Israel is a type of the New Testament church. So, for example, there are types in the Old Testament, legitimate types, where uh, you could say Adam was a type of Christ, that that Christ, Adam was the first man, so Christ is the, is the last Adam, or the last man, so to speak. So the, the, in that sense, um, uh, types uh, are, have a fulfillment. And so what they would hold to is that the church is the fulfillment of the type of Israel, and therefore there's no need for Israel, because the church is the fulfillment of that. Right? Which I don't think is a valid argument, but we'll... Well, we won't have time to dig, in, dig into that today. The study of the various types in Scripture is, is an in-depth study all on its own. So those, those are the, th the, the three um, beliefs. Not the interpretive priority of the New Testament over the Old Testament, a non-literal fulfillment of Old Testament passages, and a belief that, that Israel <clears throat> is a type uh, of the New Testament church. So um, moving on from there, I want to give a comparison with the hermeneutics of non-supersessionism. And you'll see uh, like some comparison here. Uh, Vlock highlights these. And again, um, very, uh, very much helped by Vlock's thinking, careful thinking on this. And I would highly commend his book, Has the Church Replaced Israel? He says that the starting point for understanding any Bible, any passage in the Bible, including those in the Old Testament, is the passage itself. So if if you've had any kind of conversation with me about Bible study, you know this is a major point uh, that I'll drive home. We need to take into consideration what the New Testament says about any passage. But before you do that, understand the passage in the Old Testament. Understand what it says. Understand what God promised. Understand what God said. Before you go looking to, to, to view it through the New Testament lens. So the starting point for understanding any passage in the Bible is the passage itself, and that's true whether you're talking about a New Testament passage or an Old Testament passage. Secondly, uh, we recognize that progressive revelation reveals new information. 
Right? So the New Testament does reveal new information about Old Testament passages, but it does not cancel any unconditional promises that the Lord gave to Israel. So progressive revelation reveals new information, but we hold that it does not cancel unconditional promises to Israel. The New Testament does cancel some things, clearly, right? but not unconditional promises. Um, national Israel is not a type that is transcended by the church. We recognize that there are types in the Old Testament, thus fulfilled in the New Testament, but the, the Israel um, is not a type of the church that is then transcended by the church. Fourthly, the Old Testament promises or Old Testament promises can have a double fulfillment or application with both Israel and the church. So there are times where God has made a promise to Israel and then later fulfilled that through the church. But that doesn't negate his intention to fulfill that through national Israel later. The new covenant is one of those promises that I would argue is that way. The church is in on the new covenant. But if you read the new covenant, we actually don't have all of it yet. It's it's like already it's been implemented, but it's not it's not totally fulfilled because uh, we're still being taught about God. And the, and the new covenant is the spirit will live within us and and we'll all know the Lord. Right. Well, that's that, that's not where we are now. We're still learning. We're still in progress. So the church has gotten in on that promise, but that doesn't take away the promise from the nation of Israel. Um, and before we, we move beyond this brief discussion of hermeneutics, I, I'd, I'd like you to hear Vlock's helpful elaboration of what it means to find the meaning of an Old Testament passage in that passage while acknowledging new information that a New Testament passage might add to our understanding. So it's a, it's a longer quote, but I think he's helpful in explaining this. One who wants to understand what Isaiah wrote should study the passages of Isaiah in their historical, grammatical, literary context. I do not see enough reason to conclude that with the coming of Christ, the original meaning of these passages are somehow not what they were before. Yes, New Testament writers will make their analogies and use illustrations and applications from the Old Testament in ways that the Old Testament writers could not have known. Yes, in the progress of history, New Testament writers will highlight divine correspondences and types between Old Testament and New Testament persons, events and institutions. Yes, at times, the New Testament will offer commentary on Old Testament passages that give us more understanding of the Old Testament passages. The New Testament may even add reference to Old Testament prophecies. But these uses of the Old Testament in the New Testament will supplement and harmonize with God's earlier revelation, not change or alter them to mean something different from what the Old Testament authors intended. And he also notes that for non-supersessionist, Old Testament texts must be understood on their own. If an Old Testament promise is made unconditionally with a specific group such as Israel, then that promise must be fulfilled with that group. Progress of revelation cannot cancel unconditional promise to Israel. Let me just emphasize by this point, that last point. Progress of revelation cannot cancel unconditional promise to Israel. So rightly interpreting the scriptures requires us to use accurate hermeneutical principles to help us understand the divine and the human author's intent of scripture. That's a big point today, not only with the Constitution and how we read the U.S. Constitution, but how we read our Bibles. There are many people out there today in the so-called church who are telling you to use different kinds of hermeneutics. 
right? We're talking about a certain kind here, but, but I'm just showing you that it applies wider. You have to be discerning. There are seminaries and churches who tell you that you need to use a, a, a hermeneutic of equity as you interpret the scriptures. And we'll say, no, because the authors didn't intend that. Right? This text does not flex around scripture. We are called to conform our thoughts around the text of scripture. So I will say that I'm not teaching to support a system. I'm teaching the scriptures and I hold to the system because that's what the scriptures say. Now I know talk is cheap. Someone can say that. Someone can say they're an expositor and not really do it because someone it's in fad in somewhat fashion. But just look at the look at the proof, right? I encourage you to look at the scriptures and examine the scriptures. And you will see that, that, that that's what they actually teach. So hermeneutics isn't something that, that like we invent. God used them in giving us. God is the inventor of language. God gave us rules for communication. Right? So when your spouse says, I love you, you don't think, gee, I wonder if they hate me. So, I mean, you understand what it means, right? God gave us meaning in language. So... Uh, that, that's all due to God's gift to us. So that's, that's, that's really the appeal with hermeneutics, is deal with them the way that the authors intended, the divine author and the human author. They worked together in the writing of Scripture. Ultimately, God moved them, so it's His Word. Now let's move on to the next essential consideration. I help you think biblically about Israel and the church. And that is a, an understanding of the uh, the, the gist of the theological arguments. And here there's, a, there's much wrestling that we could do in, in individual texts. Again, we're just going to look at, at, at an overview of this. Uh, I'll list the, the, the theological support for supersessionism, the view that the church replaces Israel, and, and then give a, a brief uh, kind of rebuttal to that. Again, just helping you to, to see uh, the types of, of, of arguments, the type of thinking that you need to have when you're when you're reasoning your way through this. So the first theological support for supersessionism is that national Israel has been permanently rejected as the people of God. And, and one text that they would go to is Matthew 21, 34. Uh, make sure that that's correct. I have it written two ways in my notes, so. And it's not helpful if I give you the wrong text. Okay, 43. That's what I thought. Matthew 21, 43. Matthew 21, 43. There, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, says this. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Now, there's different ways that, that the people, that you can translate the word people in the New American Standard Bible. It's people in the Legacy Standard Bible. That word is translated as nation, which is the more, I guess, more commonly used notion of that. So, you, so it's, it's, it's right to even think about this this way. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. So who is the debate is who is Jesus talking to? And, and while we don't have time to dig into the details, all the details of this, there, there is an assumption that this, this verse then means that Israel is, as a nation is done away with. But there are other legitimate ways to understand this passage. 
Jesus could be say that the kingdom of God would be taken away from those he's speaking to, the nation of Israel at that time, and given to a future nation of Israel which believes in Jesus who will produce that fruit. Because the context is is that of the Pharisees and Sadducees rejecting Christ. But there would be a nation in the future who will accept Christ, a, a nation of Israel. Certainly, the church is many things, but again, the word nation is not a description that is used in the scriptures just to talk about the church. Vlock uh, skillfully notes the following. He says, even if the nation, even if the nation uh, of Matthew 21, 43 refers to the church, and he's just kind of arguing, even if, you, even if it did, he says, this does not prove supersessionism. The fact that the kingdom can be extended to apply to Gentiles in no way rules out a future restoration of Israel to the kingdom program. Both the Old Testament and New Testament passages, both Old Testament and New Testament passages explicitly state that God's kingdom program would also include Gentiles. So the inclusion of Gentiles into the kingdom is not proof that Israel is forever removed from God's kingdom program. So the application of Old Testament language to the church shows. Um, uh, I jumped ahead of my nose. So that's that's the first point. The second theological argument would be that the application of Old Testament language to the church shows that the church is now identified as a new Israel. Here you get into the debate of the individual passages like Galatians 6.16, which we talked about already briefly, Romans 9.6, other passages from Peter 2 and Galatians 3. There's, I won't take time to, to, um, to dig into the details of these passages but but when you do, you will find out that the that, that those texts do not demand the conclusion that supersessionists are saying that it does. That the church is now identified as the new Israel. Um, thirdly, another theological argument that they use is that the unity of Jews and Gentiles rules out a future role or function for national Israel. So here we would think about a passage like Ephesians 2. So go ahead, and, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 2. And let me just read verses 11 to 22. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both by one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So 
the apostle is saying that Christ has broken down the barrier. Right? And praise God that he has. Right? It's, a, it's a good as point as any to, to emphasize the fact that anyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ is forgiven of their sins, is brought into Christ, is regenerated and made new. Anyone. Right? Sinners who refuse this are, are condemned eternally. But the good news is that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And they are brought into unity in the church during this period of time. So this, this is that, that breaking down of that barrier. Why? Because if you go back and look at the historical context, Jews and Gentiles, they didn't get along so well. Right? And, and part of that was because how the Jews, how the Gentiles treated the Jews. And some of that was how the Jews treated the Gentiles. There was a lot of am- animosity towards one another. And some of, the, uh, some of the Jewish rabbis would even redefine who, who your neighbor was so that they could treat someone else poorly. You know, your neighbor was just those that you wanted to love nearby. Right? So that's why Jesus kind of expands the definition of, of who a neighbor is uh, because of that animosity. So Christ, through his death, through his life, death, and resurrection, he breaks down that, that wall, that barrier between Jew and Gentile. That, that by the way, gives us great hope for our nation dealing with, the, what I'll, I'll use the term racial issues. There is only one human race, the, the race that, that God created. But there are different ethnicities. But the fact that God can bring together two ethnicities, two groups that, that hated each other into one in Christ gives us great hope for, the, for bringing people today together of all sorts of different ethnicities. Right? So that's done in Jesus Christ through the, through the forgiveness of our sins. What, what Paul is, is talking about is just he's, he's, he's um, emphasizing the spiritual unity of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. But that doesn't mean that the Gentiles are now Jews. Right? We see this again. If you go look at the, the New Testament and Paul's letters and Paul's writing, and, and, and there's a few debatable passages, but in, in the book of Acts, there's clear distinction between the church and Israel, between Gentiles and Jews. To borrow Vlock's words, believing Gentiles do not become Israel, but share with Israel a new life in Christ. So holding that God has a future role for ethnic and national Israel in no way diminishes the unity of salvation that Jesus provides to believing Gentiles and Jews. As I, uh, as I mentioned in the very beginning of the message, there are different people groups that God uses and those who trust him by faith are all saved in the same way. Adam and Eve were saved in the same way that you were saved. You just have more information about the gospel than they did. But Old Testament saints, whether they're from pre-Israel or from Israel time or um, even all the way up to John the Baptist time, those coming into the um, are, are saved in the same way as those who in, are today in the church age. And then I believe there'll be also saints saved it, during the tribulation, which if if our um, uh, view of of the rapture of the church is correct. The church won't even be there. So they won't be part of the church per se. But they'll nonetheless be saved. And be part of God's people. Because that's what God is doing. So again just kind of look at the, the larger role there. That um, the unity of the Jews and Gentiles. Does not rule out a, a, a role or a future role or function for national Israel. 
Then also they argue that the church's relationship to the new covenant indicates that the church alone inherits Old Testament covenants originally promised to national Israel. So where I would say the new covenant is, is a promise to Israel that God will fulfill with Israel and the church gets into it, they would say, no, the church, the God is done with Israel because of their sin and the church inherits all those promises. So there are many problems with that view. We don't have time to get into. But that, that's the argument you need to think through. And then, then also the New Testament silence on the restoration of Israel is proof that Israel will not be restored as a nation. They actually say the New Testament is silent regarding the restoration of Israel. But that's because they take the passages that talk about Israel and redefine them. The New Testament is not silent on this. Um, there is a, there's a lengthy passage uh, that Paul gives us in Romans. Romans 9, talking about Israel's past. Romans 10, talking about Israel's present condition of rejection. And Romans 11, speaking about uh, Israel's future. And, and that passage, if, if left, if you just use hermeneutics, plain, simple hermeneutics that God gave, you will end up with a belief in the restoration of, of Israel. There have been many a pastor or commentator who believed that Israel was set aside until they got to Romans 11 and began to, to, to study the text and they had to come to a different conclusion. And, and that's the kind of humble attitude we all need to have as students of the Word of God to change our views based on the, what the Word of God says. Um, think about this. Well, I won't take you to Romans 11. It's a lengthy passage and we'll get bogged down because there's so much I'll have to say there. I, I will bring you to one text. Acts 1-6. Acts 1-6. Thinking about, you know, if, if you, if, thinking about the question, is it accurate that the New Testament is silent regarding Israel's restoration? Acts 1-6. This is after Jesus um, resurrection when he's with his disciples and he says this so when they had come together they that is his disciples were asking him saying Lord is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel and he said to them now you got it all wrong Israel's not going to be restored at all you just totally misunderstood no, um, I do those things to make you read the text more carefully. Um, he says, he does correct them, but it's not about Israel's inclusion in the kingdom. It's the timing. He said, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the father has fixed by his own authority. His only rebuke is regarding their timing, not the general understanding. And that was not, and that, that period of time was not one where Jesus taught in parables. He can't do something with that either. So he, he didn't correct them. And you could say, well, that's an argument from silence. And I say, well, it is, but it's also not because he does correct them. Why does he only correct them regarding their timing if they got the whole thing wrong? Seems like he would have said that right there to change their expectations. Look at the fourth consideration. And I'll try to move a little quicker with these. Do not overlook God's plan for the nations. 
do not overlook God's plan for the nations. I've hinted at this so we can move quickly. But God's promise to Abraham includes the nations. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The word families meaning is, is, a, is a word that refers to the nations. Old Testament prophecies speak of the distinctives of the nations who will worship Yahweh. Worship God. Zechariah 4, 14. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. The New Testament speaks of the distinctives of the nations who will worship Yahweh. Uh, you could turn to Matthew 25 and uh, just do that for a minute because I think it's, it's important here for you to see this from the text yourself. Matthew 25, 31. But when, the, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. So the, all the nations are there. Unbelievers are, are judged, but the believers of the nations are rewarded. The nations that have a distinctive role in the worship of God. Um, uh, look at Revelation. Turn to the end of the, the Bible. Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. And that is not the uh, one. Uh, there we go. Yep, it is that. So this is the message to the church at Thyatira. Verse 26 says, He who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces. So I have received, so I have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. So he's, he's, he's promising those who persevere, the church of Thyatira, that they are going to rule over the nations. They'll have authority over the nations. So that, that speaks to the fact that nations are in the eternal state. Uh, look with me at Revelation chapter 21 for better proof of this, I think. Revelation chapter 21, the end of verse 23. I'll start reading in verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord... God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written into the Lamb's book of life. That's, that's talking about the eternal state. And there are nations mentioned there. Kings that are mentioned there. Look at, look at uh, Revelation 22. First several verses. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming to the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
There will no longer be any night. There will no longer have any need of the lamp of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Nations are mentioned there as well in a description of the eternal state. Why, why do I mention this? If the nations of the world are mentioned in a generic sense, the nations of the world, and they're in the eternal state, why would we think that the nation of Israel is excluded from that? It defies logic. Of all nations, it makes sense for Israel to be part of the nations that are in the eternal state. Uh, I think that that, that um, we don't think ca- carefully enough about that. And then, fifthly, I, and I'll just mention this: we don't run out of time. Understand that there, that there is a biblical case for the restoration of Israel. There's a strong biblical case. Uh, the, the Bible explicitly teaches the restoration of the, of the nation of Israel. The Bible explicitly promises the perpetuity, the perpetuity of the nation of Israel. The New Testament affirms a future restoration of the nation of Israel. The New Testament reaffirms that the Old Testament promises and covenants to Israel are still the possession of Israel, even if the church shares in some of those. New Testament prophecy affirms a future for Israel. And the New Testament maintains a distinction between Israel and the church. And you could also point to the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is proof that God has a future for Israel. All these things need to be looked at. So as, as we think through, I've, I've merely given you things. It's, it's probably like drinking from a fire hose, all these things coming at you. Um, but th- it helps you understand this is a complex issue. and and um, But you need to approach it biblically to help you understand the scriptures rightly. At the end of the day, this is what I think supersessionism has to prove. And, and Vlock draws this out very nicely. So understand that the Old Testament is the first testament. That's the baseline. To change from the baseline, you've got to provide substantial justification as to why the baseline is now different. Why is the baseline changed? So with that in mind, here, here are the, the things that I think supersessionism has to prove or you should not believe it. Number one, supersessionism needs to explain how God can make multiple eternal unconditional promises and covenants to the nation Israel and then not fulfill those promises with this specific group. That is an explanation I have not seen, but that's one that needs to be offered. How they need to explain how God can make multiple eternal unconditional promises. There are some conditional promises. I'm not talking about those. Unconditional promises and covenants to the nation of Israel and then not fulfill these promises with this specific group. Uh, Secondly, supersessionism needs to show biblical proof that the church is now considered the new or true Israel. Not not on a debatable passage. Is there there clear evidence in the scripture that the church is now considered the, the new or true Israel? And thirdly, Supersessionism needs to show biblical support that the church inherits national Israel's covenants and promises in such a way that we should not expect a future fulfillment of these with national Israel. And if supersessionism fails to sufficiently answer, uh, provide an answer for those three things, then it's not worthy of you believing that particular view. And in the end, my appeal is for you to be, be a Berean. Right? And allow the word of God to direct your theology. Don't allow your theology, your upbringing, or what you were taught um, to dictate your
their interpretation of Scripture. So in closing, let me just review these considerations. Be sure to clearly understand and define the terms. Know the importance and influence of hermeneutics on the debate. Understand the gist of the theological arguments of, of, of the individual passages and how each side would explain those. Don't overlook God's plan for the nations. Understand the biblical case for the restoration of Israel and know that you and know what you should demand of supersessionism before accepting it. Or if you have accepted it, think think through how would how do you answer those those questions? And if you cannot, don't hold to it, because we want just to honor the Lord and our God for His, um, you know, His His word. I believe that that non-supersessionism, the view that the church does not replace Israel, best honors the text. And best honors the faithfulness of God. Even in light of Israel's unfaithfulness. Abject unfaithfulness. Repeated unfaithfulness. God will yet bring about a faithful remnant of Israel. A national Israel who will worship him. And it's all by God's doing, not their own. In the same way you and I are saved by grace. All by God. All through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord, we, we just um, ask that you would use your word in our lives, that you would help us to filter what was said and, Lord, cast away that which is unprofitable or, or just doesn't align with Scripture, and that you would help us to uh, conform our understandings to what the scripture, Scriptures actually teach us regarding Israel and the church. Lord, you are a faithful God, and it's just so... We're, we're so indebted to you because of your gift of salvation and the constant and unrelenting faithfulness which you demonstrate towards your people. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, please take your hymnal. Speaking of, of God's faithfulness, take your hymnal and turn to hymn 86. We want to sing together the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Let's stand and sing together.
This morning we have the privilege of welcoming new members. So I'm going to ask uh, Robin and Eric Brown to come up here. Yeah. We won't embarrass you. Try not to anyway. So Eric and Robin have uh, completed our membership rigor. No, it's not that bad. You can ask them. So you can ask any of the ones that have recently been through it. Um, that um, they have completed the membership process and actually completed a little while back, but we've been uh, waiting on a good good date to, to get you up here and acknowledge that. So we love you guys. You can kind of feel that you're already already members in spirit, so this is just a, kind of a formality, um, but um, uh, it's one we want to acknowledge, acknowledge your membership. Um, remember those who are already members that we make, becoming members, you're making uh, commitments really ultimately to God to... to Exercise your spiritual gifting, your biblical one another commands to one another, love each other, hold each other accountable. And, and that, that's what it's, um, you know, primarily uh, there for. And um, commitment is between you and the Lord. So um, it's just really one you are making to each other and unto the Lord. So I'm just going to ask you a few questions and um, just you can answer of your own free will. So... Um, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, will you be diligent to exercise self-control so that your lifestyle exhibits both true Christian love and personal holiness? Will you take seriously your relationship to others in the body of Christ, striving to meet faithfully, maintain unity, and doing all that you can to stimulate love and good deeds in others as you seek to exercise your spiritual gifts and faithful service? Will you patiently, kindly, diligently, and lovingly resolve any disagreements, hurts, wrongs, suffered, and disputes so far as it depends upon you, uh, so that as far as it depends upon you, you are at peace with all the brethren. Will you teach biblical truth to your family and acquaintances as God gives you opportunity with a desire to see them come to trust Jesus Christ and be saved? Will you always be willing to give, both give and receive admonition and instruction with meekness and love? And will you consistently contribute as good stewards of God's blessing, such time, talent, and resources, in the measure God should prosper you, so that your te church testimony and the ministry of spreading the gospel may continue? And will you commit to praying for the ministry here in this church, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and for the lost who need a Savior? And I know you will, because you're already doing these things. But I think it's, uh, it's good to formalize this and... For you guys to hear the commitment and to know that you guys have our commitment as well, that in any time of need, that we'll be there to help you guys as well. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask uh, Dave to come close us in prayer. And uh, let's see, Dave. But, so I'll close in prayer. So um, and pray for uh, Robin and, and Eric. And then I'm going to ask uh, you guys to come up and give them the right hand of fellowship and welcome them into the family that they're already part of. But uh, we're just very grateful God brought you guys to us. All right, let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we just thank you for your grace and, and bringing us together. As I reflect upon your work and each of the, each of the people that you bring, it's just a, it's marvelous to see what you're doing in believers' lives. And I thank you for your work in, in Eric and Robin's lives and bringing them and the, the two daughters here to be uh, with us and part of our church family. And Lord God, just ask that you would help them to just joyfully fulfill all the biblical uh, commands.
commands that you have called them to and help us as a church to, to really uh, be faithful as well to them, uh, to carry out those one another's that are commanded in Scripture. Lord, it's something we do uh, by responsibility, but also we do uh, out of joy. And we're just so thankful for your work in, in their lives. And Lord, just ask you to help them to run with, with joy and endurance the race that you have set before them. Help us now, Lord, as we um, go in back to our, our kind of separate spheres of Medina, that you would help us to do so with your grace. And Lord, to be faithful in carrying out the message and be faithful to continue edifying the saints. In your name we pray. In the name of Jesus we pray.